let's take a look at First uh, John. I'm sorry, First John, chapter one, starting at verse fourteen. This word, the word, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. This is the um, one of the two most controversial parts of the book of John. And when I say controversial, I mean the claims that they make offend a certain percentage of people. The other one, by the way, is in John 14, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Can you imagine uh, a political figure being asked by a reporter, do you believe that anybody who doesn't come through Jesus uh, uh, will never get to heaven? Can you imagine what would happen if they said, that's correct, you have to come through Jesus? Well, I can tell you a little bit about that. I was up at Ohio State University uh, teaching a medical thing, but it, part of the way through, one of them said, just a real quick question, reading your bio, you work in the ministry, how can you be a scientist that works in ministry, and what kind of conflict do you have? And I said, I can't answer your question until the big hand gets to 12. <laughs> Because then my class is over and I can say what I want to. So, but I'll stay here and I'll, I'll answer any questions you've got as long as you have questions. And I do that every time I go up. Next time will be the end of January. And everybody stayed at this time. And I was thinking, uh-oh. Uh, but the person stood up and they said, Christianity makes exclusive claims. Do you hold to those? And I said, I'm not going to give you a blanket yes. You have to tell me which claims you're talking about. So he said... Do you believe that you have to believe in Jesus to go to heaven? Well, I wasn't going to tell him I thought it was more complicated than that. I just said, yes. And as soon as I did, the whole room, it's the exclusivity that's offensive. By the way, I, I just, I'll recommend that you give this a try. <laughs> I said, I say, you have to go through Jesus to get to heaven. You say that makes me what? And I just started writing up on the board, narrow-minded, stupid, backward, uh, ignorant, and there were some other words I'm not allowed to use here, but I know how to spell them, so I put them up. Uh, on, and I, I put them all up until they were out of words. I kept egging them on for more words. More, I, I can take any adjective you want. Uh, whenever they were done, I said, I said you have to go through Jesus to get to heaven. You say that makes me, and I turned around and read all the words. And I said, and you are absolutely correct unless I'm right. And if I'm right, none of these apply. And we went from there. I can tell you that you will make enemies as soon as you go exclusive. That's one. And the other is this. There are so many people that have this, this amazingly difficult concept that God could put skin on. And they'll even talk about sweating and pooping and all kinds of stuff, and how can your God do, and then dying, allowing to be dead on the cross. And these aren't just people like um, our Muslim friends who believe that there's no deity that is ever put on skin. It's, it's also people like the Northern European religions that believe God was a warrior God, and how could you have a God that allowed people to kill him? That was just too offensive. I would submit to you that there are a whole lot of churches that have problems with this concept because their God is still distant, angry, and disapproving. And the idea that God, that Jesus is what God looks like is difficult for them. 
because Jesus was full of grace and forgiveness and kindness, and the only people he attacked were the religiously smug, the religiously arrogant and certain. Now, I've not read the book, so I cannot give a blanket endorsement of the book. There is a writer who is quite controversial among Christians. I actually enjoy his works quite a bit. This is being recorded, and I will be written up for even saying this, but there you go. It doesn't mean I agree with everything he says, but I love to read Peter Enns, E-N-N-S. And I've read several of his books, loved them. There's a book out now, which I'm, uh, is in my reading queue, called The Sin of Certainty. And it's about what certainty does to us and how it makes us hard and edged and how we need to look at Jesus and the way he handled things differently. For example, I love to, as, as an ex-shrink, look at Jesus and the way he deals with people with problems. Sometimes he says, believe, then do this. Other times he says, do this, then believe. Other times he says, change your belief, and that'll change your action. Other times he tells them, change your actions, that'll change your... In other words, he didn't have a cookie-cutter approach. And yet, what do religions try to do? Cookie-cutter approach. This word put on flesh... I'll never forget whenever I was on um, an interview that made the internet and went, and they asked me how I dealt with certain passages in Scripture. I said, remember, I said, I read Paul through Jesus. I don't read Jesus through Paul. That was, I got called a heretic by a very publication. It was founded by David Lipscomb, who also said he reads Paul through Jesus. So I thought that was rather ironic, but that's what happens when you don't know your history. The word became flesh. You're going to find tension in scripture. You just are. You're going to find tension between the battle scenes in the Old Testament and the concept of God is love. You're going to find tension between Paul and some of his writing and some of the things Jesus said. When you do, I believe there's a way to alleviate and deal with the tension. I believe that there are ways we can explain that where Paul is not in disagreement with Jesus at all, but in the meantime, before you get there, as you wrestle through there, always remember this. If you have to default, default to Jesus. Go with Jesus. Never let anybody trump Jesus. That's, that's so important, and that will make many people very uncomfortable. Uh, up in Rochester, Michigan, where I was for 10 years, it's a suburb of Detroit, we... Um, we had a situation. I'm not going to give you any details about the situation. The shepherds called me in. Uh, we, we talked about all the situation with this particular individual. And the question was, how do we deal with this? Uh, they talked for a while, then they looked at me. And I talked about complete mercy, complete forgiveness, and the like. And at the end, they came back to me. And, they, and a couple of them said, we appreciate what you said. We understand why, you know, very very useful, and we, we may go that direction, but have to ask you, one of them said, why did you go with that response? And my response was, oh, for purely personal, selfish reasons. The Bible says, if you want mercy, give mercy. If you want forgiveness, give forgiveness. When there's a doubt, I'm going for mercy. I'm going to fall on that side. That's what happens when the word becomes flesh and lives among us. I remember once, many years ago, saying in a sermon that God's gone through everything you've gone through. As a human, he knows everything you go through. Well, I had a, 
a tradition at that church. This is before the internet and computers were in homes and such. I left my notes up on the pulpit for the week, whatever they were, so people could go make photocopies or whatever. Well, I went back the next uh, few days later to look, and somebody had written in red pen on my notes. I don't know why red was more offensive, but there it was, saying, God's never been pregnant. He doesn't know what that feels like. I'm thinking, yeah, he does. He lives in our cells. He designed the nerves. He planned the chemicals. He's with, in fact, in Job, the Bible says, God counts the days until the deer give birth. And he's with them when they're born. He put on flesh, and that's huge. Not just to visit. God has visited us in the past, right? Through the, uh, the angel of the Lord, um, through um, angels that have visited and such. No, he, he walked among us. He went through it. He took the blows. He felt it. We have seen his glory. That's what John is really pushing in this book, and what he pushes in his epistles as well, which is we're witnesses. The reason John continually has to say we saw this is because most of the witnesses had died. John lived old to his 90s. And um, if you're in your 90s, I'm not being insulting. Please remember, this is first century. First century, a person in his 90s was rather unusual. He knew, he saw them dying, so he puts down his story. We saw him. We saw his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, this passage has given translators fits because they're not sure how to do this and still include us, the one and only Son. If you remember, just a couple verses before, back here, verse 12, Yet all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or husband's will, but born of God. In other words, we're adopted. But there is a sense in which Jesus is a son that we can never be a son like that. He will, because of his essence and his history. The love, however, and this is a shocking, staggering thing. God loves us as much as he loves his son. Is that enough for us to think about and dismiss for the week? That's a hard one, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever been told that before. How about this one? In heaven, whether we go to heaven or heaven comes to us or however that's going to work, the Bible says, well, in the book of Revelation, where is Jesus when they look at heaven in the book of Revelation? This is not a trick question. He's seating on, seated on a throne beside his father. But when we get to heaven, the picture changes. He walks among us. He's not going to be on his throne when, we're all, when we all get to heaven. He's going to walk among us like one of us. And that's another week. You can just sit around and think about that one. Not just God's humility, but that also means he thinks of us. How about in Galatians chapter 3? Those of us who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. My son did a little thing with pictures. Uh, he, his son was born 
um, three weeks ago tomorrow. And he, uh, he took a couple pictures of Colin and then a couple pictures of him, same age. They look the same. Not like all babies look the same, which there's a truth to this. You know, they'll, they'll hold up this purple wrinkled thing to you and say, it looks like you. And you're going, anyway, um, it looks like my son. And, and the, the statistics look like, you know, my son. And so when my wife holds him, I can already tell you what she's thinking. Because she's got her son back through this one. My mother made a very similar comment whenever she held my son. My, when my mother held my son, she looked at him and she looked at me and she goes, it's like I have my son back. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm right here, mom. Yeah, I didn't go anywhere, but evidently I did, metaphysically. Um, we put on Christ. God thinks of us as he does his son because we are his sons and daughters. Now, there's some ramifications to this. There's a whole lot of good news. Let's, do the whole, let's just all embrace the good news. Now we've embraced that. There's a ramification as well. How am I going to treat you when I know I'm going to meet your father later? You know, Cammie, a lot of you have mentioned that Cammie and I treat each other with such grace and kindness. Yeah. First of all, have you seen her? Anyway, she's beautiful. Uh, but there's another reason. She's God's daughter. I'm going to have to talk to him one day. I don't want him to lean forward and say, so, not the way you treated my daughter. Oof. I want this to be a good day. I want to get a star. I want to get a smiley face. Never got one in school. It'd be nice to finally get one. Never got, even got a check mark with the please well with others. But now I realize, you're sons and daughters. I gotta treat you appropriately. John testified concerning him. He cried out, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. That might have been a note in the margin, but it is in enough ancient manuscripts to where most of them treat it as a parenthetical aside as John is moving forward. And that's John the Baptist he's referring to. Out of his fullness, Jesus' fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Remember what we said. The Old Testament, yes, was law, but there was grace all over that. Everywhere. When you were a kid, and they told you the Bible stories, did you ever wonder how stupid these people were? They never got it. I'm being offensive on purpose. Like, why didn't God just kill them all? I mean, they never got it. Until you grow up and you realize the Old Testament's more of a mirror. Because we all are the same. We all blow it. And yet, God kept him alive. I've had people in my office before weeping and say to me, how can I believe in God's grace? And I'll look at him and say, have you read a paper? If you were God, would you have allowed the world to continue after seeing those stories? I know in the U.S. it's hard. If you get to Tennessee and half of that's USA Today repeats. It really is. They're owned by the same corporation. They cut and paste. And it's, it's a shame, but there it is. But many of you will know that every, all news stories this last week have been about 
Weinstein or about the NFL and kneeling. Did you know that 189 people were killed yesterday in Mogadishu by a bomb? Most of us don't. Did you know that there is a Muslim minority that in Bangladesh is being hunted down by their Buddhist neighbors? Babies thrown into fire and smashed in front of their mamas. Boys, men shot down in the street while the women are raped and then shot in front of each other? No. Why? Because we're so busy about who kneels in front of a game. Then I ask you a question. If you were God, wouldn't you have killed us by now? But he didn't. Explain that grace to me. And then say this. Understand this. If he had that much grace during the Old Testament and that much grace now, why do you think he ran out when he came to you? You see why this is important? There's a practical thing here. If the devil can get you to think that your sins aren't covered and that God is displeased with you, then he's removed you from usefulness for that day. And that's, that would be tragic. Well, John shows up, John the Baptist. This is John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. There's a guy preaching here. Who is this guy? Who gave this guy permission to preach? They said, who are you? Are you Elijah? All right, it's not a dumb question. There was a prophecy that before Jesus comes, Elijah would come, preparing that voice in the wilderness. Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? By that he means the coming Messiah, probably. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Um, in most places in the world, even today, you cannot preach without government permission. And they have to certify, and if you don't get it, you are killed and your followers are imprisoned. And, and That's most of the world. So this is not unusual for the authorities to come out and say, who are you? We need to know your credentials. Who gave you permission? John's a pretty rough guy. He replies in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. Well, that's confusing to them because that's what they would have thought the prophet or Elijah would have done. The Pharisees, those are the super Christians, really super Jews, but when you say super Jews, it sounds like you're being anti-Semitic, who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? In other words, who gave you authority? By whose authority are you doing these things? I baptize with water, he said. John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. <laughs> Don't you like that kind of foreshadowing? He is one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. There's a guy walking around you you don't know, but you're about to know him. Ooh. Have you ever thought about the shudder that would have gone through the crowd at this stage? And not just shudder. If some people overheard him, there would have been a bit of joy because finally these religious guys that were in control of everything might get their own back. Is that, a, do you, is that an expression you 
Get your own back. You know what I mean? I hope. <laughs> um, get what they deserve. There you go. Thank you. Americans. Perfectly good language. Anyway, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now remember, that's something John likes to call Jesus, the Lamb of God. Do you remember what the Lamb situation was? People are on the roads coming to Jerusalem to do their sacrifices. Some of them have a lamb who is perfect. They've checked it all over. But you would have heard on the road all day long dads telling their sons and families, watch the lamb, watch the lamb, watch the lamb, behold the lamb. That means to watch the lamb. Because if it's damaged and then you get to the, the, uh, the church building, the temple, then you can't use it and you'll have to buy another one for the inflated exchange prices of the people running the tables in the temple. So watch the lamb. When John, because this is a road going there now, when John sees Jesus every time he says, watch the lamb, they knew what that meant. This is the sacrificed one who is walking. And by the way, in the book of Revelation, whenever that thunderous worship scene and all of a sudden the camera shifts to the throne and standing there, you expect to see a 5,000-foot-tall guy in armor with a huge sword, but you see a slaughtered lamb. Wow. Good friend of mine, Greg Stevenson, who's a professor of theology up at Rochester College, wrote a book called Slaughtered Lamb, and it's about Revelation. It's an amazing book. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. You know what that means, right? Pre-existent. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Baptism. Baptism was a part of the Jewish culture already. Had been for a long time. Normally, uh, and it could be in, in, in rivers, but normally it was in mikvah, which were, or that's a singular, mikvahut for, for plural. These were dug down, kind of like a baptistry here, but they were dug down into the rock or the soil. And, you, and most of them had steps that went in one side and out the other. And the men had it separate from the women. And the, they would go walk down and they would submerge themselves as a ritual cleansing of their sins. Sometimes they would do that repeatedly. Um, there are, and again, you need to remember over a thousand years of Jewish history, things change. But that's the general picture there. But here's John baptizing people out in a river away from the temple. That's very significant. Away from the temple. People are receiving grace. God's doing a new thing now. He's not going to live in a temple. He's going to live in people. He's going to be in the countryside. John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. Now, by the, just please read. Did, did a dove land on Jesus? No. They're using their language to describe what they see. And if you ever want to know how inadequate language is, read Ezekiel 1. 
How many times, Dr. Lemons, does he have to say like or in a way of or he does not have words for the appearance of God in front of him and the cherubim or seraphim or whoever is, is with him at that point. Um, then the, the, I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, why didn't you just say God? He said, the one who sent me to baptize with water. By this time, many Jews would not say the name of God because it was too precious and holy. There would be, again, this varied, and man, did it vary right before and after Jesus. But there were a couple times during the year, a couple days during the year, holy days, where some people could say the name. I had a very good friend who was an Orthodox Jew. He saved my life. He's a, he was a surgeon. He's one of those amazing guys you only meet every so often. He, he was a dentist, an MD, and had um, uh, board certification and further education in plastic surgery and ENT. You know, this is the guy you want. And he did some surgery on me and, and saved my life, and yet he never would shake my hand because he's Orthodox, and I am Gentile, and I was not hurt by this. But we would have discussions about God, and I'd be the only one saying the name. He would not. He would refer, like he who gave us authority, or he who sent down, but that's as close as he would get. He wrote me some letters, that's before email, and he would bring up God there, but he would do G-D. Some of you are nodding, you've seen that. Again, never use the name. So John is being respectful. And he said, uh, I'm, uh, the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come, and come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. By the way, notice that this takes place on several days, maybe weeks, maybe months. Jesus is not pulling the trigger, but John keeps pointing at him. His mama tried, kept pointing at him during the wedding, didn't she? Jesus didn't pull the trigger near fast enough for people around him. What does that tell you? It means we're just like them. We want God to pull the trigger. Not on us. <laughs> we, wanted to pull, we want to be judged by our intentions. We want God to judge others by their actions. let you write that down. Everything I say should be on a t-shirt, frankly, don't you think? All right, moving forward. Even that, even that should have been. Uh, um, the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples when he saw Jesus passing by. And once again, look, behold, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. <laughs> Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? <laughs> I love this. It isn't like, yes, building the church. It's kind of like, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said, come and you will see. What does that show you? The purpose of God's existence is not to answer your questions. He invites you on a journey, but he never promises to answer a question. Oh, you want to know where I'm staying? 
let's walk. Also notice, and if you've never done this, you really need to, how the vast majority of stories about Jesus involve movement, journey. Why is it that so many of us believe that his church is to remain encased in amber and fossilized when everything he did was about movement, change? As a science guy, I got to tell you, if you don't like change, you really picked the wrong universe. Everything is about change. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. I'm not really sure why that's terribly significant, but now we know. Andrew uh, is significant in Britain because that's tea time, but uh, it wasn't there. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. By the way, I, I would love Andrew. I feel like sometimes we have cartooned him because Andrew's first instinct was to go tell others the good news and bring him to Jesus. And so all we do is use him as an evangelist. It might surprise you to know Andrew is a patron saint of a lot of nations because of his quiet attitude of bringing Jesus wherever he went in the conversation. He's the patron saint of Scotland, for example. I've had people say it's well because they brought some of his bones to Scotland. No, no, he never got there. None of his people ever got there. It is merely that concept of he brought Jesus wherever he went. But look him up sometime and see how many nations claim him as their patron saint just for this. Jesus looked at him, the brother, and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Have you noticed all the parentheses? Most of these moved in from the margins over the years. So just be aware of that. But they're still, they're very useful. What does Cephas mean? Peter means rock, too. I've had people come at me and say, but it's a different kind of rock. Could be. Don't overanalyze it. Was Peter a rock during most of his time with Jesus? <laughs> I say, no. No, not so much. It was after the resurrection he was a rock. And even then he had a crack or two, didn't he? Yeah, remember about... I don't think Peter was a racist, but I think he gave in to racist. Remember that? He knew better because the whole Cornelius thing, but ended up only eating with the Jews because the Jews were offended when he ate with the others. So he, he was a cracked rock. That's, hey, Peter, that's as good as we get, isn't it? I'll take it. I've been called worse. Okay, real quick. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Movement, and I'm not going to say this every time or you'll get so tired, but just watch for the movement. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Now that's a different one. Some people found Jesus, he found others. If you read Romans, there are some troubling passages in there where he, God talks about, I loved him, I hated this one. I chose this one. There are some of you that sought Jesus. He hunted me. 
And I don't want to put that in past tense. I think he still is hunting me. Because my thoughts will go off some directions. And I can almost hear Jesus grabbing a hold of me and saying, no, 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 no. Over here. I don't know how many times I've started a prayer with, all right, this was not the life I had chosen. When do I, you know, and, and, and God and I are arguing about my direction. He always wins, but he still lets me argue. Some of us, you, some of you were hunted, some of you hunted him. I don't really have a great application to make. I just want to put it that way. Our, our experience of Jesus may be different. I am, I'm, I'm so humbled when I see, and I don't, I don't know the inner thoughts of these men. So I may be completely wrong, all right? I want to preface. When I see a John Mark Hicks just immerse himself every day of his life in theology and study and directing to, and reading the ancients, and, and I'll, I'll see an N.T. Wright, and he's retired now, and he, he shows his wisdom by moving to Scotland, and uh, he lives in a small village there in a house full, over full of books, continuing to seek. And, and just immerses himself. And then you've got people like me who are perfectly happy in our ditch. We liked our ditch. We weren't one of those that got out of the ditch and told everybody how wonderful it was that we got out of the ditch. We were quite comfortable. And God continually came in and drug us out. And we both get to go to heaven. I, I that looks unfair to me. I'll read John Mark Hicks's post on Facebook, which are almost always great quotations from the church fathers. People I never heard of. And I'm thinking, I was going to put that I just bought some cheese, but maybe I'll not now. I'll just like his post and move on. And yet we both get to go to heaven. Isn't that amazing? I'll tell you this, and then we're going to stop because of time. I want to tell you her name, Phyllis. I'm assuming Phyllis has gone on to see Jesus now, but I might have my timeline wrong. We were in West Virginia for about nine years, and Phyllis would come in the door. Phyllis's husband, she lost her husband to a mine accident. She was living on a widow's pension, which was not enough. Uh, she had a lot of reasons to be better, if you knew her, her life. I never saw her better. Every time she would come through that door, she was full of faith. This woman was a big wad of faith. And it just would amaze me. I told Cammie, I said, if her legs fell off when they carry her to the church building and you ask her how she's doing, she would say, God's been just so good to me. She would go around to, a, or have somebody drive her because she didn't even have a car, go around to garage sales to buy cards that hadn't been used so she could send them to people to encourage her. And if you lived in West Virginia and didn't get a card, you must be Satan. Because she encouraged anybody. She lived for that. I look at her, and I want to tell you very frankly, we're both going to the same heaven. I think she's going to like it more. I'm going to, I'm going to walk around and say, this is really cool. She's going to be bouncing. And I'm going, cool. No wonder she got a better house. I'm all right with that. She had the gift of faith. And I actually talked to her once. I said, Phyllis, I wish I had the faith you had. And she could not believe everybody didn't have that faith. She's going, oh, Patrick, you're just trying to be humble. I said, no, I'm, I'm actually better at being humble than this. But I was trying to explain to her what her faith meant to us. It was just amazing. 
She hunted Jesus every day of her life. I've been hunted by Jesus. Do you know? I don't know which one you are, but here's the cool thing. Both of us get to go. We're all saved. Isn't that cool? Have you ever had one kid that's easier than the other kid? Jim Gaffigan, one of my favorite comedians. No, it isn't him. Now think about it. It's another one. Uh, Reg uh, Brian Regan says, my wife and I have two wonderful kids, and everybody applauses. And then he says, and, and another one. <laughs> I was the other one. Um, I'm one of God's problem kids, but I'm still a kid. How cool is that? Well, it's cool to me. And time's over, so you can no longer comment. The subject is closed. Go away. 